with Scott Allen. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in this beautiful world. I am your host, Scott J. Allen, and this is Phrenesis, Practical Wisdom for Leaders. Now, I am a professor of management at John Carroll University in Cleveland, Ohio, USA. In addition, I'm a husband and father of three teens. Now, this is a family endeavor. Will played the intro, Kate voiced the intro, and who knows, you may hear from Emily a little later. I'm also an author, entrepreneur, speaker, and co-founder of the Collegiate Leadership Competition. I love to travel, explore new places with family, and learn from others. Phronesis offers a smart, fast-paced discussion about all things leadership and followership, if we're honest. My guests are scholars and practitioners, and we cover relevant topics and incorporate practical tips designed to help you make a difference in how you lead and live. I am proud to share a few updates. According to Listen Notes, Phronesis is listed as among the top 3% of podcasts in the world because of you. So thank you. In addition, the podcast has two sponsors. First, Phronesis is the official podcast of the International Leadership Association, an association that is near and dear to my heart. ILA brings together leaders and those who teach, study, and develop leadership, advancing leadership knowledge and practice for a better world. Learn more at ila-net.org. My second sponsor is the Bowler College of Business at John Carroll University. At Bowler, we offer several advanced degrees and MBAs, and I'm confident that there's one that will fit your location, interests, and timeline. In fact, our online MBA is ranked as the number one in Ohio and number nine in the United States. We offer international study tours, a contemporary and forward-looking curriculum, and access to senior leaders and flagship organizations. Learn more at business.jcu.edu. You can find links to both sponsors in the show notes. Now, if you like what we're up to, please hit subscribe so you can stay current as we release new episodes each week. You can also share what we're up to with others, friends, colleagues, leaders, teams, students, and others you think will benefit. And now, today's show. Okay, everybody, welcome to the Phronesis podcast. Thank you so much for checking in wherever you are in the world. We are continuing the series of conversations from this book that was edited by Jonathan Reams. He, again, is my co-pilot today. And today we have Dr. Jimmy Parker. He is a developmental psychologist and executive coach that helps leaders accelerate large-scale organizational and cultural transformations. He's currently helping Kaiser Permanente's technology transformation mature into an org-wide transformation to create more healthy years for more people. Prior to joining KP, Jimmy established the Home Depot's executive development programs and refocused their internal consulting practice on a multi-year transformation of culture and agile ways of working across the enterprise. His background includes a variety of roles such as agile software product manager, enterprise learning strategist, helicopter instructor pilot, and military officer. He's a graduate of the United States Naval Academy, has a master's in organizational development, and is nearly complete with a PhD in human development. He lives in Atlanta with his wife and two teenage boys and is a huge fan of the Princess Bride movie and enjoys roasting small batches of coffee every weekend. Oh, wow. Jimmy, there's a lot that I could jump into here. But Princess Bride, just as you wish. Oh, oh right? yeah. This is going to be a fun, a oh. fun interview already. <laughs> <laughs> such a great film. Such a great film. So many wonderful yes. lines. 
And one of the one of the wins I think as parents that my wife and I have achieved is that at random points our children will quote from either the Holy Grail or the Princess Bride, and it's always just we look at each other from across the kitchen and say, "Okay, we're winning." Uh, well, Jimmy, thank you so much for being with us today. We're very, very appreciative of your time. And Jonathan, how are you, sir? I'm good, and I'm really looking forward to this, too. So I think I got to know you, Jimmy, three, four years ago through a mutual friend, John Oliver, and have kept up with your dissertation work um, and have been really, how do I say, learning a lot through tagging along on the journey. Um, but for today, what, what I want to do, because there's so much that you have to offer, and we're going to just give the listeners just some snippets of these different chunks. In the book chapter, you talk a little bit about how you got into leadership in, in the military context. Could you say a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. Oh, my goodness. I was I was halfway through military academy, and I had the opportunity to be kind of like the equivalent of a drill instructor, but for officers, uh, you know, sort of new freshmen coming into that school. There was a six-week, very intensive period, and I got to be a squad uh, leader. <laughs> and uh, that was my really my first taste of leadership ever. I don't know, there was just something in me that that sort of lit up, and it wasn't like the uh, the ego boost, <laughs> you know, that, that gave me a lift. It was just, I was now, uh, I had some responsibility for really the development of of other people and and I just took it seriously and I slept better at night and I was more happy even though it was a very intense environment so I was like what is that and I realized later it was it was like my first real taste of like a life purpose kind of thing <laughs> cool and how did that translate into your corporate life that grew from those very early days in the military and I was in, uh, in the Marines flying helicopters for about 11 years total but and during that time that, that interest in leadership grew and grew it, it started off me wanting to to be the best leader that I could obviously and that led me naturally into the self-help aisles of the bookstores and really just doing the best I could to be a, a good leader but really development in all domains the best parent I could be the best partner spouse you know that I could be and uh, spiritual growth like all kinds of you know everything sort of development and growth and learning of sort of all kinds just really grabbed me and then at some point toward the end of that 11 year period in the military I realized I wanted to share what I was learning so what what started off when me wanted to be the best leader that I could really morphed into wanting to build the best leaders that I could and that obviously took me on a different track. And I realized that if I were to stay in the military, my opportunities would be fairly limited in that new sort of career trajectory that I that really was sort of calling me. And so I uh, once I once I fulfilled my service commitment, I opted for uh, a job with more flexibility that allowed me to pursue the track I'm on now. As you were speaking, it made me think of my conversation with Doug Lindsay. Doug is at the United States Air Force Academy and is the editor of the Journal of Character and Leadership Development. And mm. he had a quote from Bob Hogan that said, who you are is how you lead, which mm. I just love that quote from Bob Hogan, who you are is how you lead. And, and what I love about that quote is you could probably at the end of it, put in parent, coach, right? I mean, it's it's just this becomes much broader than just a leadership role. It's how am I as a father? How am I as a partner? And I just, I love that framing. How do I be the best person I can be? And then that will translate to different domains, right? 
Well, and, and I think that's a good segue too, because I gather that through all this voracious reading and adopting of things that you somehow came across adult development in some form. Yeah, well, I wouldn't say uh, the form that, you know, you have these discreetly defined stages and, you know, specific techniques for driving what you call vertical development through those stages. I didn't really discover that until I had gone back to grad school fairly late in my career, that sort of urgent desire I had to want to build leaders and just get better and better at my craft. You know, I had jobs that allowed me to do that and sort of grew from there and I got better and I got better feedback. And then I realized I've only got a bachelor's degree in computer science right now. And I've been on this, this development track now for a couple of decades. And I was like, well, what if going back to school would make me even better at my craft? And that was what pulled me back in actually to grad school and ultimately the PhD. And it was like literally in the first couple of weeks of PhD that I really got formally introduced to these stages. I'm like, what do you, what do you mean? There's a map I can start to follow, <laughs> you know, to try to figure out development, you know, the kind that I've been interested in for so long. There's a map, my gosh, and it just sucked me in deeper. <laughs> and the book was probably called "In Over Our Heads," right? <laughs> <laughs> that was definitely one of them. <laughs> now, what I I find really interesting, you you said a moment ago, and I think one of the things that Scott and I have encountered in this series is that. There's meant more rich and diverse ways of talking about development than the simplistic vertical stage models. And we're realizing that there's much more to it than that. When you were in Home Depot and you had the chance to try and develop leaders, develop the best leaders you could, you had a fairly creative way of trying to enable a kind of system for people to do that. Can you say a little bit about that? Well, the system that you saw was not version 1.0. <laughs> I, I made a lot of the fairly common mistakes that a lot of people make in this field when they're new to it, particularly if they're enamored with these stages as I was, perhaps excessively so. And I would lead with that. I would teach people and participants in programs about these stages. And that comes with, it's a pretty loaded conversation, really. It comes with a lot of baggage that can actually get in the way of development, surprisingly. And so one of the pivots there was to tie everything to developmental stages, but complexity. Snowden's Kinevin framework, you know, simple, complex, complicated, and how there's different levels and stages of complexity inherent in life. Nobody really pushes back on that. It's not an ethical question usually, you know, whereas with development, you have all these, it's sort of laced with ethics oftentimes. And people, you know, right versus wrong, people better or worse, you know, later stages and better, you know, that stuff really kind of it gets put to the wayside, you know, when you start to anchor everything and the fact that some things are more complex than others, some jobs are more complex than others. And then certain people are better suited to that versus not. The essence of the program is, let's see, microlearning is pretty popular these days. It's not microlearning, but that's a good sort of mental frame. I, I would say it's not quite microlearning because learning usually for most people means knowledge transfer of some kind. Like I take knowledge, I chop it up into small bits, and then I give that to you in sort of little bite-sized things on the assumption that if you knew better, you would do better. That's the assumption that, that I don't think is accurate. And I've been trying to sort of help people, you know, cross that knowing doing gap we humans seem to have even to build our own habits that we want to. We struggle quite a lot. So instead of micro learning, I would call it like micro experiences, maybe where there's instead of just the, the learning or the acquire acquisition of new knowledge, it's a micro task. It's a micro action. It's a micro experience that we design for them to do on the job 
we have a very specific design criteria. There's a there's an action that they must do on the job. You know, usually you can't complete it by looking at your screen. You got to go do something, talk to someone, you know, have a, a certain kind of meeting or conversation or something. And then there's a reflection question that you answer after completing that task. Both together, that pairing of action and sort of a reflection, a question that they have to answer is designed to take 60 minutes or less, no more. So that's the micro piece, the sort of bite-sized piece. And then we build we build one of those pairings per week. And then we build a program around that to sort of get people doing and reflecting and many, many reps over time instead of the fire hose effect that you can get in the classroom. We call it more like the drip method. Jimmy, I just love that. That is, I have, I have not heard of someone implementing anything like this. Did you have a model that you looked to? Or was this this your creative process of, of saying, look, we need to get people out experiencing these things, engaging in that work? That's just, I'm so interested in knowing what you found from that experience. Yeah. In some ways, you could say it was mine. And in many ways, you can say that it wasn't really because the reading that I had sort of done over time naturally led me away from learning is knowledge acquisition and more around habit formation techniques and experiential learning and, you know, John Dewey and all the sort of original folks that really helped us understand how humans really do fundamentally change in in sort of meaningful, deep ways, you know, for good, a sticky kind of change. And it was through sort of studying that stuff that I naturally just started bracketing in toward this approach. And one of the things that was the big shift was when I realized this type of growth often takes place in its most sort of concentrated and popular forms in an offsite of some kind. You go leave the workplace and you go into the forest or something, you know, for a while and you've got expert facilitators and you can have some amazing transformative experiences, life-changing. People never forget that. They come back and they're, they're different for life. I really wanted to figure out how to crack that nut without having to leave the workplace by leveraging the workplace and, and this Love more, the, more the spirit of, you know, an everyone culture, another Bob Keegan book of how we can leverage that environment itself as a developmental stimulant, because most adults spend most of their lives in an organization of some kind. Why leave that place in order to drive development? Yeah. Yes. I mean, exactly. Because what, how do we, and, and this is a similar hunt that I have been on for more than a decade now. How do we design interventions that are in the flow of work, right? So I, I had Joe Raylan on a few months back, and we had a conversation about some of his work. And as you know, the action learning and that whole kind of stream of literature. But how do we align it with the flow? And how do we keep it so very, very close to the work so that it's a it's a with versus an other, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Building these kinds of programs and attempting to do them at scale had just tons and tons of lessons learned. There's a whole chapter or series of chapters I could probably write just about the design requirements. What a strong task on the job tasks, you know, kind of looks like. You got to tick certain boxes in order for it to be really have the most amount of developmental juice. And then, you know, there's a whole environment ecosystem that goes around that, around small group peer learning, how big should the groups be, the use of coaches, facilitators, you know, what makes a good coach facilitator? How do you train those coaches? And and even then people who, what I found was designing these kinds of tasks is not normal. Like nobody learns how to do this. Uh, instructional designers are equipped, trained, and certified to design instruction. That's learning by knowledge transfer. Yes. 
you know, and this is knowledge by experience. This is creating an environment for people to sort of stumble upon a deep insight, you know, on their own and not be told it, you know, (laughs) learning by discovery and designing experiences that help people do that in a powerful way is a unique kind of design skill that's not even very abundant in the marketplace. So that was, how can I find enough people to build these kinds of programs that still have a lot of developmental impact? And uh, that was much more difficult than I expected. Wow. And I'm thinking what you're describing is a lot like what we saw at ILA from Mike Maskello, who is deep into skill theory and this model of do and reflect. And it's very similar to Theo Dawson, who you also interviewed, Scott, that model of learning skills, and that you were able to kind of also direct, I think you had a simple metric for people that you trained as coaches to get away from the being the hub and everybody responds to them and how much our people respond, just simple things that allowed them to kind of measure their performance And you also had something that was surprising about the changes that were long after the course. There's more metrics than you can shake a stick at at a course like this. And and the book lays them all out in terms of the ones that we we use the most. You just referenced to Jonathan. The the first one was it was a sort of a quick and easy, simple feedback loop for coaches to know whether they were doing a good job. You know, we tell them in coach training on day one, which is very lightweight, by the way, two to four hours. And we say, hey, you're not the fountain of wisdom here. (laughs) Even though these coaches were like one job level higher than the participants that they were kind of coaching, which is quite countercultural for the organization I was in then. At the end of each weekly session that they would have, you know, helped facilitate, there's two questions and both of them are measured on a one to five scale. One is the hub and spoke model. The other one is more of a network, you know, sort of typology. And just we had some anchors and some language in there around you as the coach throw out a a discussion question. And then Scott answers you and Jonathan answers you. And then Jimmy answers you. You're the hub in the middle and all the spokes are just talking to the coach. They're not talking to each other. That's a one out of five. (laughs) You know, you didn't do that. Great. We're going for a five here where you might toss out one question at the beginning of the meeting. And there's enough psychological safety, there's enough interest and camaraderie and relationship building where they really do are trying to learn from one another. And just this amazing conversation breaks out and the coach may not have to say anything else. The entire meeting, that's a five. That's an ideal where they're really tuning into one another and learning from from others. And you can there's a cocktail of, you know, sort of things that goes into creating that kind of magic environment. And that's also the, the job of the coach is to create that environment. And we we sort of equip them on how to do that. That was the one thing. Uh, I can get to the second metric here around impact. That was more like, um, how do we know this program had an impact? And so we had a question. It was pretty simple. Again, there's much more sophisticated, more, quote, accurate ways of doing that. But again, this is a very busy environment. Some of the participants in our program literally ran multi-billion dollar with a B, P&Ls. And yes. they're super busy. <laughs> you know, we had to we had to figure out ways of producing good data in that environment uh, that was good enough. And one simple question was, we took the participants in the program, we said, all, all of them report to a manager or a boss of some kind, even higher up in the org chart. He said, hey, have you noticed any differences in your participant in these very specific ways, which aligned with the objectives of our program? And they were behavioral, in other words, observable. Have you observed changes in these areas? And in the very beginning of the program, only about six to seven weeks in, 
we got about half of the bosses saying, yeah, I've already seen a change in like one to two months. And by the end of the six-ish month program, over 90% of bosses said, I agree or strongly agree that I've seen some, some substantial changes. This is also surprising because the people who went into this program in the first couple of years, these were our high, highest potential leaders. These were our leaders who had already been tra- tagged as being some of the best that we have. And we made them even better, you know, sort of through this kind of a program. Well, we took that same metric system, that same simple question. We, the program ended, you know, 90% of bosses said, agree, strongly agree. And then we waited nine months after the program was over. Because usually you get this this drop off, you know, as soon as the yes. program ends, you know, the behavior drops back to you know old habits and all that stuff. We had, I don't remember the exact numbers. Again, it's in the book. We had a, uh, I don't remember, I, I don't want to misquote myself, but essentially when we did that, that same question again, nine months later, the numbers were even stronger, which suggested that these participants continue to self-develop. So it says uh, the manager ratings of participant behavior change was 3.93 out of 5 at the end of the program and 4.5 nine months later. That's durability yeah. right there. Yeah. And, and again, going back to like before I discovered adult development and all of these you know techniques, that was the thing I was trying to solve for was how can you get people to grow and develop themselves, you know, in the sort of everyday kind of thing. And that was that's my favorite stat from the program of all, because it's almost like no one knew I was trying to design for that. <laughs> and then, when, and then when these numbers came out nine months after the first program ended, I was like, oh, "Yes, so good, so good." <laughs> okay, you said a word a few moments ago that was an important word. It was cocktail, and I think, <laughs> I, I think, I oftentimes when I'm designing a course or designing a learning experience, and some of our conversations, Jonathan, have just been wonderful in this series because there's some really cool clues about some of those ingredients. I view it as a. Sometimes I use the phrasing recipe. The, yeah. Is the recipe, is, it, is the burger feeling like it's from, you know, White Castle, no offense to any White Castle fans, or an In-N-Out burger? For for those <laughs> not in the States, that's a very highly coveted burger with long lines <laughs> to get to In-N-Out. So which one are you serving up, right? And there's a recipe in place. And I think learning experiences are recipes as well, that there's some, there's some main ingredients that are just fundamental. So you use the phrasing cocktail. Can you just highlight a couple of those super important ingredients in the cocktail that you think helped yield these results? I could talk for 40 or 50 minutes, maybe, just answering that one question. So I'll stick it to very, very high level. This concept that it's it's rooted in doing, not in learning to do. It's learning from doing. So it's action forward, action first, and then, you know, reflection on the action. That's absolutely critical. The degree of difficulty of the action has to be pretty high also, because you can think about if we're asking them to do a one-hour task on the job every week and then also meet up with a small learning group that did all the same thing that week, that's two hours a week. That's a lot of investment, really, for most busy leaders in an organization. And if you're going to ask them to spend two hours a week doing this one thing, they don't spend two hours a week doing one thing hardly at all, you know, a very small number of things. It better be a good use of their time. And so that's why you got to ratchet up because if you don't, then your little program that you built is running the risk of wasting people's time. You'll get thrown out. Yeah. You, you won't get the traction or the budgeting or the funding or whatever that you need. So it's got to be action forward. It's got to be difficult, really good, valuable use of their time and their investments. The learning environment, the peer learning environment is super critical. 
we're looking at groups maybe as low as four, usually five, maybe as high as six, sometimes seven. That's the sort of the range there, because any more than that's a party people can hide. Any less than that, then the dynamics change a lot when someone doesn't show. Uh, we have a weekly cadence, not bi-weekly, because again, if somebody misses a meeting, if it's bi-weekly, then they go a whole month. And yep. you just lose too much momentum. Weekly is good to keep the sort of level of effort high. And I, th- I think the coach, the coach's role is is quite important as well. One of the biggest things that I found was most leaders, even executives, have never experienced a program like this. They don't know what they don't know. You can't hold them accountable for that. So, like, it's just like an HR thing in the beginning, like a check in the box. And <laughs> what happens is you need to get them over an initial hump where they have the light bulb moment and they go, oh. Yeah. Whoa, this is really valuable to me. Yes. That doesn't happen on day one. In fact, it usually happens around week three, sometimes week four, but only when you have the right ingredients in your cocktail. And the coach's role there, we essentially leverage formal authority in the organization to get them doing what they're supposed to be doing, even though they don't, many, some of them may not want to. Yeah. To help them really taste the sweetness that's available to them here. And what we found is that after the program is over, about half about half of these learning groups continue meeting on their own because they want to. You're able to kind of shift a lot of senior individual leaders' behavior, but I can imagine that at some point you're trying to understand, is this having a collective impact on the organizational culture? Is there collective development going on? And I know that as you moved into doing your PhD, this became a, a central question for you. So Let's head in that direction a little bit, because I know there's a lot of juicy learning there. You're right. (laughs) There's a whole lot different there. So essentially, the world of adult development is right next door to the world of what I'm calling these days vertical OD, which is a collective development using a similar stage theory, basically saying, yeah, we know that people, individuals can develop through these stages in, in somewhat predictable ways and scientifically valid and all that good stuff. What about teams? What about entire departments, divisions? What about entire organization? What about all of humanity? There seems to be similar patterns that people have sort of noticed that a group may behave at a particular stage of development that we know exists at the individual level, but we're not sure really if it exists. We believe it exists at the collective level, the group level. And so I really wanted to lean into that pretty heavily with these programs and design for that kind of vertical collective development. And I just want to interject a little bit, because as you describe this, what I can imagine, you know, you come into a new team or an organization you join, and there's norms. And those norms can inhibit your performance, or they can enable it. And so there is something about the collective that supports the individual. Yes, absolutely. You know, there's lots of theory about how the individual, how individual development is related to enabled by or inhibited by collective development. And when I looked at that more carefully, I realized that our ability to measure individual development is quite strong these days. We got 50 years of testing and learning and the, and the numbers and the data and the scientific statistical validity is there. It's solid. It's good. Our ability to measure collective development using the exact same yardstick, that exact same sort of stages of development, is at the opposite end of the spectrum. It's very immature. We can't really do it today. And that was what I did my dissertation research on was how are all the ways that it's been done? What are the advantages, disadvantages of all of those ways? I sort of cataloged all of that stuff. That was my literature review. 
And then I invented a new approach to sort of do it in a way that no one had done in hopes of maximizing the advantages of all of everything that had been done before and minimizing the disadvantages had a pretty surprising result. <laughs> I sort of realized I was trying to isolate the individual. Like if, if I'm rating my team, if I'm rating my organization, it turns out that my own individual stage of development affects how I rate another team or a, or my own team or another organization or my own organization. I was trying to isolate that effect to where mm. my own individual stage of development, wherever it was, I was trying to prevent my own individual stage of development from affecting how I rated a collective, a group of people. And I leaned into that about as heavily as anybody has ever leaned into that. And I discovered that I ended up measuring individual development more than collective development. It was I got the exact opposite result that I was expecting to get, which which just sort of goes to say how hard this really is and how we really haven't figured out how to do it today. I know Scott's got a question here, but I just want to say it was so interesting to read through that as I read through your dissertation to see that all this work you put in to try and sort out, you know, make distinctions and filter out things that might be noise in what you're trying to measure and isolate these things ended up showing you that it's much more difficult than we imagined. Yeah. Well, I know, I know Keegan at least has mentioned in everyone culture, I think they start talking about working to measure some of this in, in a collective group. I think they're calling it the LPOP. Is that accurate? Have either of you explored that as a tool, the LPOP? I'm, I'm not familiar with the LPOP. I, I'm interested to see what, what kind of assessment that it is, because again, that was part of my work was to sort of canvas the entire field of development and organize all of the ways people have tried to assess this in yeah. sort of a, a different sort of a framework that I had ended up creating. And my guess is it probably fits into one of those. Yeah. Well, could you say something a little bit then about, because I know you talk, for instance, about models that ask people to kind of match descriptions or other models that do other kinds of things. And you ended up looking at polarities. So could you mm -hmm. say a little bit about the high level descriptions of typical ways people try to do that? Mm. So broadly speaking, without getting too nerdy and, and, and putting everyone to sleep here, the ways that vertical complexity or vertical development has been assessed, you can sort of put it into two broad buckets. The first one that came online first and is pretty popular is what I prefer. I like to call content matching. And it's basically saying, hey, through our research, we've discovered that people at this stage of development they do these things, they say these things, they behave these ways, they believe these things, they have these value systems, that type of thing, in, in sort of defining a discrete stage. But at the next stage, things change and they believe different things and they say different things and they do different things or can do different things. Most stage-based models of vertical development have these sort of rich, thick descriptions at each stage of development. Okay. And so if I'm an assessor and I want to figure out what stage you're at or your team's at or something like that, I just observe you for a while map it back to my definitions, and then render my opinion. And so I'm comparing what I see in you to what's in my manual, my scoring manual. And so that's what I call that. It's a comparison-based assessment. Um, content matching. I'm matching you know, what I'm seeing to content that's in a, a stage-based manual. Other theorists had identified that as person grows through these stages, we also see some sort of meta properties that sort of change or alternate and flip back and forth, you know, throughout the stages. And one of them is um, sort of an individual orientation all about me. 
and then a collective orientation at the next stage, all about we. And then at the next stage, they continue development and suddenly it flips backwards again to all about me, but in a slightly different way. But again, the focus is back on me again. And you continue to develop now four stages beyond from when I started. And it's again, back to we in a different way, a more profound way, a bigger way, you know? And so that one little like rocking chair back and forth throughout the developmental stages of individual orientation and a collective orientation back and forth as one actually develops has become one of multiple parameters that people have also used as the basis of a stage assessment. So you can look at what's the primary orientation. Is it individual or collective? You go, oh, it's individual for this person or this team. And then you add in a couple of other parameters and you go, boom, they're at stage three. And, and you know, we referenced earlier Terry O'Fallon's stages model. And when we right. talked with Jeff and Abigail, went into that a bit. And that's one of the three parameters. And there's another parameter then around, is it something concrete or is it something subtle or is it something really kind of meta and then another one around active and passive, I believe. So there's kind of three criteria that you can look at, and they kind of move in different constellations. So that's, that's right. the second model. How did you try and then design your study, trying to mitigate the challenges of measuring collective uh, development, uh -huh. uh, compared, having given the review you did and know that content matching wasn't probably what you wanted to do and other things weren't. So how did you end up okay. where you did? Essentially, what I found was, well, if you're going to do collective developmental measurement, if you're going to try to measure a stage of a collective, you got to canvas a lot of people. And you can't interview a lot of people to any reasonable amount of, you can't do it cheaply. Or quickly. So you have to use surveys. That's kind of like everybody's using surveys. Most people are using surveys in this space. And everyone is using a content matching approach. In other words, there's a multiple choice question that my team's behaves like this, and you got option A, B, C, D, and each option correlates directly to a particular stage of development, right? So oh, you just take yeah. the content out of the scoring manual, you drop a multiple choice question, and then people say, oh yeah, that's like me, or that's like my organization or whatever. And then, you know, you you create a, a list of 10 or 20 or 30 of those, and then you know you just do the math. What I found was, uh, and, and this is pretty well known, some studies have sort of proven that most people have a natural intuition about which of those options are developmentally early or later. They don't have to know adult development theory. They don't have to know anything about the stages. They just sort of intuitively know that. And, and if you ask them to arrange them in order from least developmental to most developmental, most of them will get it right 90% of the time. And think about it. If you know yeah. how those answers are arranged, like that introduces all, all forms, all kinds of bias. Uh, Halo horns effect. Like if I'm rating you, Jonathan, and I like you, I might rate you at a later stage of development than I really should. Then you really are just because I like you. And if I don't like you, that's called the horns effect. You know, I, I might rate you, you know, less favorably, even if it has little to do with your actual <laughs> stages of development. And so we found that true with people think about organizations. There's a halo horns effect. There's also the well-known, well-documented in item response theory problem of people rating themselves more highly than they should. It's a very common, very common effect. And so what I tried to do was I tried to come up with not multiple choice, but fixed choice questions where when somebody read the question, you still had a fixed number of choices to choose from. But I try to design so that people would not know which options were developmentally earlier or later than others. And it turns out that the content matching approach naturally feeds into a multiple choice question where you have all of those problems. 
And so that was where I switched, not from a content matching approach to assessment, but to a pattern matching approach using these parameters that are more difficult to explain, frankly. But the advantage of them is most people, they don't know how <laughs> individual versus collective orientation maps back to a developmental stage. It's it's completely lost on them. And so they're just sort of free to answer, you know, more honestly, I guess, without with fewer biases. So what I recall was you were using kind of a polarities approach. These things look like they could be equally applicable and they would pick one or the other. Yeah. Instead of a multiple choice question, I went with slider questions where you literally have a slider. There's a ball in the middle of it. And the participant, the person answering that question will move that ball left or right to represent the relative, re- relative weighting of the two anchors at the ends. The way to do this properly is you craft the anchors at the end of each slider so that they're either equally positive and desirable, equally negative or undesirable, or equally indifferent. They didn't know which side was more developmentally earlier or later. In fact, the answer to any one question did not arrive at a stage theory. There's some math and some magic under the hood with the calculations that allowed me to combine questions to arrive at a developmental assessment using, you know, Terry O'Fallon stages, stages model under under the hood to do that after people had answered all the questions. Wow. Yeah. Most people didn't know whether they were answering in a way that was developmentally or they couldn't tell. And so when we did the analysis and it correlated quite strongly with measures of vertical complexity of the inherent work that people are in, which is a sort of a proxy for individual development. That's what told us that, wow, people really were answering in a way that more reflected their own developmental stage than the stage of the organization they were supposedly evaluating. So given that finding, did you find anything interesting, though, about how you understand collective development? or organizational culture, the complexity of work in relation to how people look at it? What what could you take away in a sense of understanding organizational culture and its development in relation to leadership? The, the reason that people are focused on this topic is because it seems very interesting. It seems plausible that, that there are these sort of stages of way people act with one another, norms, cultural norms. They seem to be different. Nobody discredits that. It seems that you can probably at some point lay them on a spectrum of more complexity, less complexity. We just haven't figured out how to measure that just yet. So we don't really know for sure. And so I would say, Jonathan, if anything, I'm approaching that particular question today with much more modesty than I ever have. You know, there's lots of consultants in this space that say this organization that I've worked in for three years is at orange stage of development or 3.5 or, you know, you name it. And I'm just like, I'm not sure that we really even have a way to to confidently assert that right now. The finding that I would say is you, you gained a, a healthy degree of perspectival humility. <laughs> yes, <laughs> indeed. Yes. Not, I've, not never, humility. I've never heard that phrasing. Perspectival? Is that a word, Jonathan? Perspectival humility, yes. Wow. But, but it, it is the... The awareness, and I think this is a good example that for myself, understanding development has moved from simple stage descriptions to where you realize those are just conveniences that are not really at the heart of what we're trying to study or what we're experiencing Hmm. or how we're experiencing it. And so you realize that the enculturation or models you absorb actually get in the way of understanding the phenomena more deeply. And when you dig into it like you did with your PhD, 
that's the result in essence. I'd say the probably the even bigger surprise and oh my gosh, how is how can that be true? Is that even the world of OD, the whole world of OD, not just this narrow slice of vertical OD, vertical development, but all of OD, you know, there's the letter D and OD means development. And I thought that was an appeal to a broader developmental spectrum where you can say this organization is further along on the spectrum. There's nothing like that in anywhere in OD. And so that's why most people in OD, you'll often see the acronym now be ODC, OD and change, organizational development and change, because clearly we can change an organization from some current state to some future state. But to to assert that that's more development, that they are developed more than they were before, you have to make all kinds of assumptions, and, and it really becomes quite a slippery slope. You can say that they've changed, but to say that they've developed, that's a different story. And that's kind of, again, what my literature review sort of discovered, where we really have a measurement problem that we don't know how to measure organizations, collectives, teams, cultures. Okay. As we begin to wind down, I'm going to switch gears on you. And this is going to be a little bit of a, a hard left turn. Okay. But I really am interested in this question. Okay, Jimmy, you ready? What did you learn? What do we know from instructing helicopter pilots that we need to employ in developing leaders, helping individuals be more successful when serving in these really challenging roles? What does instructing helicopter pilots do better than we do in leader education, development, et cetera? Well, first of all, <laughs> I absolutely love the question because I have had a bit of a multidisciplinary background yeah. and I, I've seen sort of the benefits of trying to solve similar problems, but in completely different domains, you know, different people, different language even. And uh, and so I love that you're bringing together like my first love, my act <laughs> one of my life, you know, with this sort of act two in the corporate world and even act three now as a academic a great article by King and Nesbitt looked at the leadership development industry and they looked at the factors that sort of drive that industry, like in the form of like buyers and sellers, right? You've got providers of leadership development solutions and you've got people who buy those solutions, right? The name of the article is Collusion with Denial, <laughs> Leadership Development and its Evaluation, meaning, meaning we don't really pay enough attention to whether or not it's working, but we spend yes. a lot of money to make sure, you know, that we're doing it for all kinds of different reasons. So it's, it's meeting someone's needs. It's meeting some people's needs in some way. And in many cases, it might just be to offer some perks to our high potential leaders or because they're in this prestigious program. And that's really the end of it. But is it making a darn bit of difference? Is it helping to change people in, in a healthy way? Is it helping the organization achieve its mission? Or not. Those connections are usually not even not even looked at. And and usually when you've got somebody that leans into that pretty heavily to say, Here the, here's what the numbers say, it's, it's usually pretty disappointing. And so you've got this this whole industry here where you could say buyers and sellers are sort of colluding, you know, but denying the fact that it doesn't really work, you know. <laughs> You don't get any of that in the military <laughs> to go back to <laughs> like training pilots and stuff like that. Like results matter. <laughs> you yes. know, we pay attention in, and and we measure and we make sure that uh, our investments are producing the return that we want. If not, we pivot and uh, and make sure that the mission is first and foremost. And that's true for military. It's true for many um, organizations and including nonprofits. You know, you've got a mission. And you want to do good in the world. And how does development tie into that? Does your organizational strategy, is it supported by 
a developmental strategy for people, for teams, for organizations. And that's been another area that I've really sort of worked hard to try to make those threads connect, you know, as explicitly as possible so that this becomes an enabler of business strategy, of organizational strategy, of our overarching mission that we're all here to do. Love it. Thank you, sir. You know, at least for me, as I reflect on our conversation, it we went we went to a lot of different places in the quote unquote pool. And I just absolutely love, I think we said this before we jumped on to to the actual recording, but love it when we're speaking with someone who is that that scholar practitioner, that individual who has these really big, interesting, cool, fun questions rooted in that literature, and then has a space in organizational life where we're really working to operationalize some of this. And, and the experimentation and the innovation and the creativity, it's just beautiful. It's wonderful. So thank you for the work that you do. We appreciate it. This has been fun. And I just have to say that I, I deny the label scholar practitioner. I do not identify as a scholar practitioner. If okay. anything, it's, if anything, it's practitioner scholar. Okay. Okay. Practitioner first. Well, but I okay. have to say that your, your dissertation and the defense uh, meeting you had was one of the most uh, riveting, engaging, and <laughs> robust defenses I've ever been to. Oh, thank you. Very kind. <laughs> that so says kind. a lot. <laughs> uh, well, Jimmy, hope you will come back. Thank you so much for your time today, sir. We we really appreciate it. It's been fun. Thanks, Scott. Thank you, okay. Jonathan. Jonathan, another one of those conversations where I just love that we have someone in an organization trying to operationalize, experimenting, trying to move this thinking forward by acting, by really, again, running experiments to see how we can move the needle here. Love it. I have so much respect for Jimmy and what he's doing, because not only is he in an organization applying these things, but his scholarly inquiry was just astounding. I was at his PhD, you know, oral, it just blew people away. And that led to the title, you know, we have a measurement problem. <laughs> Houston? It, it, it is so true that we are able to measure some things in approximations, but we often take those approximations to be more serious than we should really. Hmm. And I think the next thing was, and he got into this, the whole thing of OD work, organizational development. What does development mean in OD? And how do you try and measure that? And that was a lot of his dissertation research and seeing that, hey, there is nothing out there that really does this well. We really have a problem here. Hmm. Again, this, you know, what the personal background, this taste of leadership in the military early on. Yes. Um and then this led to this the drip method of corporate leader development, leveraging the work environment as a stimulus. So it's not putting people in the classroom so much as giving them little tasks to do in the job that are designed in an elegant way to help them learn. And then the simple way he helped do the instructional design to create a real kind of knowledge transfer and reflective process instead of just experience stuff and whatever happens. He talked about this, the simple metrics he used. You know, he had senior executives as coaches or facilitators. They're not trained for this. So he just said, look, 
reminds me of Tim Galway. Just what do you ask them to pay attention to? Well, notice how many interactions between other people there are compared to how much you're answering. Mm. And just getting them to pay attention to that improves the quality of interactions in the group. And this thing of the durability, tracking observable behavioral changes so that the metrics on are people behaving differently from the people around them and their managers actually improved nine months later. Mm. It wasn't this kind of drop off of the training. No, it was actually very durable. And he was designing for that. And then the dissertation research where he got the opposite result of his intentions on trying to understand organizational or collective development and seeing that this idea of individual development, how individuals perceive and make sense of the organization came through more than the sense of a collective entity around that. Hmm. He also had such a rich overview of how adult development measures are categorized, this notion of a natural intuitive knowledge of developmental sequences, and really what came through was this healthy dose of perspectival humility. And it gets back into some themes that even in our own debriefs of these episodes that we've been engaged in, that as the context shifts, as what's happening around us adjusts, do we have humility? Do we maintain curiosity? Are we passionately, what was the phrasing we used a couple episodes back? Passionately detached curiosity. Detached curiosity. Passionately detached curiosity. Yes. Curiosity, but then there's a humility in that as well, right? In that Indeed. curiosity. I, this goes back to Edgar Schein's phrase that I love so much. Access your ignorance. Mm. To really ground your inquiry in a place of recognizing this humility of your perspective that you don't know. Yes. Yep. Incredible stuff, Jonathan. Thank you so much. As always, it's a pleasure. Appreciate it. Be well, and we'll talk again soon. You have just finished another episode of Practical Wisdom for Leaders with Scott Allen. To contact me, visit www.scottjallen.net or send me a note at scott at scottjallen.net. I can also be found on Twitter and LinkedIn, so let's connect. Now, if you have feedback, I'd love to hear it. And as always, thank you so much for listening. One final nod to our sponsors, the International Leadership Association and the Bowler College of Business at John Carroll University. And now, here's Kate's twin sister, Emily, with the outro. You've been listening to Phronesis, Practical Wisdom with Scott Allen.